heart of Wellington, Kansas, Powder and String Outfitters is your down-home, one-stop shop for all things shooting sports and outdoors. Welcome to the Powder and String Podcast. Welcome all of our listeners out there back to the Powder and String Podcast. Today I am joined with uh, joined by Tim. Uh, Tim, how do you say your last name? Rozuski. Rozuski. I knew I would probably butcher that, but Tim is uh, with Pope and Young, and um, I'm just. I, I tell you what, I'm really excited about this because this is something that I've always been interested in, and I've always um, wanted to know a little bit more about it. But Tim, what's your official title um, at Pope and Young? Um, I've been the director of records for right at two years now. Yeah. So what is the director of records? What is that? What is that uh, all encompass, if you will? Yeah. The most obvious thing is that I'm in charge of all the record entry data that comes in, um, ensuring the integrity, make sure our measures turn in everything that's required, but it's also managing or coordinating measures, training measures. Um, I also help in the, on the events teams um, on the side, but the coordinator also um, hosts and um, coordinates our panel every two years, which we'll talk about later. And then another nice piece is I put on the big game display. Yeah. And that's, that's something that's coming up was April 12th through the 15th in Reno. Yes, it is. Yeah. And, um, we're super excited. Um, we've worked with Pope and Young. You guys reached out to us about, um, putting together a, um, building a custom one of a kind 1911 uh it's going to be a dan wesson 1911 and 10 millimeter um and our in-house engraver uh, brian strange with b strange um productions he's he's already been working on that um check out both uh, pope and young and powder and strings uh facebook page for updates but man i that that gun it's it looks it's looking good i'm excited he, about it because that is the gun that i am looking to purchase myself <laughs> um, as a new carry piece, um, to hunt North. Yeah. This thing, I was excited. I was super excited when we were, when you guys reached out to us to, to do this. Um, you know, we've, we've done several of these before, but man, this one is uh real special to us. And, and, uh, it's, we've got some, some pretty good ideas, uh, I think. And, and when it's, I'm just excited to see it done, it's, it's in progress right now. So, um, Brian's just super talented with that, but it'll be, it'll definitely be a one of a kind piece and it's going to be something that people are going to, um, it'll be a head turner. I I'm sure of it, but yeah, yeah it's I'm a, excited about it too. I was glad to hear that it was, that it was happening. Yeah. It's a Dan Wesson 1911, uh, Razorback, but we're going to take it and, and make it a unique one of a kind and it'll have a, it'll be custom, have some, some Pope and young, um, um, characteristic, I guess, maybe is what, probably the rest, best way to describe that, but it's, I mean, you're not going to want to miss out on it. It's going to be a, a really cool piece for sure. But, um, yeah, so we're going to be out there Pope and young, uh, at the Pope and young convention. Um, we're super excited. And so as somebody who's never been to the Pope and young convention, and I'm sure that's probably going to be uh, the same case with a lot of our listeners out there, maybe you can 
as somebody who has been there and is in his associate, tell us, tell us a little bit about what, what somebody can expect with that. Sure. Um, it's a four day convention and every day the big game display is available for viewing in the grand ballroom at the nugget casino. Um, on the second floor, we will have vendors and outfitters throughout the, the foyer. And we will have, I think, four or five seminars or workshops every day. We have several luncheons and fundraising dinners. We have a large auction on Saturday. And throughout the week or the event, um, we have some other fundraising with raffles and sign auctions going on. We have two incredible convention raffles. One is to win a hunt with Chuck Adams, and one is to win one of four hunts that I think the average fair market value of each one of these hunts is well over $30,000. The winner gets to choose which one to go on. And it's not an easy choice. It's I don't know that we've ever had a raffle item or selection that was so large or so valuable. That's super exciting. And I mean, that, that Chuck Adams uh, hunt alone, you know, that would be a, a, a bucket list. And I mean, I, I would, I think I'd even put that a, in a place where it wouldn't even be a bucket list because how do you have a bucket list like that? I mean, that's pretty, pretty specific. It's know, quite possible that you would be the only person other than maybe a family member or very close friend of his that's ever hunted with him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, he hunts alone most of the time, I understand. And that might be one great reason that he really gets it done. Yeah. <laughs> He's uh talent. We've talked about him several times on the podcast here and um, he's definitely in a league of his own and you know, he, he has, uh, he, he, he's, there's just nothing. He's just great. He's, he's awesome. Yeah, He's, he's wonderful. And he'll be there at Pope and young uh, in the evenings and, and maybe even throughout the, the event. Um, he's got several animals that came to panel that'll be on display. It's uh it's exciting. You know, we, only do it every two years. Um, it would just really be hard to do it every year. It's, it's quite an event to put on, but it also focuses a little bit around our recording periods for the record book. We have two-year recording periods. Similarly, Boone and Crockett has three-year recording periods, and at the end of the recording periods, we invite the best of the best that came in in that recording period to the panel. And then those that come to panel and are verified um, receive awards and are put on display at our convention six weeks later. So <clears throat> I, I know a little bit about it um, just because I've been, you know, a hunter my whole life and it's something that's always intrigued me. But um, for the listeners out there that, that aren't as familiar with it, if you will, um, your, your, your window that you're talking about, your two year for Pope and Young, that's animals that were that were harvested during that time no it's animals that were measured submitted and accepted by us my my team in that time period so you could have taken the animal in 2019 yeah. 1999 you could have taken it a long time ago but you finally got it measured and it was accepted some entries come in and we have to work on them longer they don't get accepted there's things that we need to investigate or look into, but if it's accepted between January one of 
2023 and December 31st of 2024, then it's in that our next recording period, our 34th recording period. Okay. And so a lot of people, myself included, until, you know, later on didn't realize that, you know, Pope and Young is not just for, you know, deer or, you know, whitetail, right. if you will. How many species um, do you have? There's 29 species, one of which is unhuntable right now. There's a couple that are not hunted a lot. And which one's unhuntable um, right now? I just got a text this morning that our vice president just recently, in the last couple of days, harvested a polar bear, which is exciting. I think we had six polar bears turned in in the last recording period. The one frustrating or difficult thing about polar bears is that you cannot export them out of Canada. So the folks that go up and, and hunt polar bears with any weapon, um, they have to find a place, a shop, a taxidermist, a bar, a convenience store to house their polar bear. And so I imagine there's a lot of Every place you stop up there, it's probably a life-size polar bear. Yeah, you, the the establishment owners are going to start charging them rent. Well, you, I suppose you can put it up, but it's going to be, you know, $100 yeah. a year, <laughs> something like that. Um, yeah, and that's something that, you know, conservation groups need to work on and find a solution for trophy owners and hunters. Um, we have ways to get trophies out of other countries. Um, obviously the animal's not on the extinction list. It's not on the endangered list. It's huntable. So the inability to bring that animal into the United States or out of Canada specifically um, is something I really hope conservation groups can work on. Yeah. So you said one of them is currently unhuntable. Um, which species is unhuntable? It's one of the caribou. I believe it's either Quebec Labrador caribou. I believe that's what it is. Um, the numbers have just significantly dropped and the management objectives of those management agencies determined a couple years ago that we just can't have a hunting season until either management or the species just naturally has a comeback. I don't know if it, I don't know if it was disease or winter kill or or what um but that particular species of caribou um i believe is is not huntable right now okay so with those two hurdles if you were looking to harvest all 29 species um one you won't be able to bring home and the other one you may have to wait a while and cross your fingers hope we can get that one back right so in the panel that you're you're going to have is you'll have all 20 i guess eight species you'll have a uh will you have specimens of we all do of those? have some quebec um labrador caribou at this panel and convention that were harvested prior to um that species um, seasons being closed they're past harvest and especially in velvet um just a few years ago we started ranking and recognizing world records in all of our velvet categories our 14 velvet categories um, now are ranked. So we had to call in the panel all the top five animals in each of those velvet categories. And to explain panel, you have two years to send your animal to panel. You get two invitations 
if you're in the top five all time. And if it doesn't come to panel, then we drop it from the record books. If it's a top five all time animal. So two of those Quebec Labrador animals that are at convention are velvet animals. Mm-hmm. So when, if I understand it correctly, so let's say I harvest an animal. It's a, it's a, you know, large animal. We have a, I, I get in contact with an official scorer. Um, mm-hmm. and that score comes out and, you know, officially scores it. There's a drying period. What's the drying period? Is it, is it the same for all species or does it? Does it, it is. Okay. And it's the same between Boone and Crockett and Pope and Young and most state or Providence record books. And it's 60 days. Okay. So 60 it's days, not 60 days from the time of kill. And there are requirements for the drying period. Um, for all skulls, bears and cats, all the flesh has to be removed from the outside and inside of the skull. Mm-hmm. As soon as that's done, whether it's boy or bugs, um, then the 60 day drying period begins. If you harvest a deer and you get the skull cap off and you take it to the taxidermist or pronghorn, for example, and they put it in the freezer, mm-hmm. the drying period doesn't begin until it's out of a freezer. It has to be in what we call room temperature. Okay. I mean, if you harvest it in the winter, what is room temperature? What it really means is you can't manipulate it. You can't put it in water. You can't put it in the freezer. You can't do anything to that skull, antlers, or horns that would affect shrinkage or impede natural shrinkage. And just out of curiosity, what, I mean, you guys have probably done the testing and there's a reason for the 60 days. How much shrinkage in, in an animal, you know, let's just say a a mule deer, what, what kind of shrinkage can you see? Um, what's, what's normal from, you know, if somebody green scored it, um, to after the drying period, what's, what do you see normally with that? Um, it's hard to put out like a percentage or a number on it because every animal is different. Right. Obviously velvet Mm -hmm. is going to shrink differently than hard horn animals. Animals killed early in velvet are going to shrink more than animals killed really late in velvet just before they're going to rub out. Um, Animals taken in Arizona versus animals taken in say Alberta or Montana are going to shrink differently based on the moisture content in their antlers. On average, I would say a mule deer could expect to shrink in two years, two to four inches. Two years or two months? Two years. So in two years. In two months, it's it's hard to say. Mm -hmm. I don't really measure, and we don't really encourage it at all, to measure green Mm -hmm. because then it just leaves an expectation and shrinkage um, comes into play. Okay. So... Pronghorn shrink more than other species. Um, and bison, as an example, they really don't shrink very much. Yeah. It's very interesting. So let's say that, you know, somebody shoots, uh, you know, or what they think is to be a record animal. What's What kind of advice? Or I mean, we've talked about, you know, the drying period and we've talked about, you know, how many days and, and how the drying period is 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 started how do they document that to where it's going to be 
um, best to help quantify, I guess, if you will, this potential record book animal? Sure. Um, there are different theories or, or processes that hunters and taxidermists take. If you know it's a record book qualifying animal, there's no doubt. You then have the question of, are you going to get it mounted? Or is there going to be taxidermy done? And what species is it? And are you going to get it measured? If, if it's yes to all those questions, I'm going to get it mounted and I'm going to get it measured. Let the 60-day drying period take place. Then get it measured as soon as you reasonably can. And then go ahead and get the taxidermy done. But if we have any reason to believe that it's a top five biennium, one of the top five animals taken in our recording period, or Boone and Crockett's, be very careful not to cut the skull plate um, and, let's say, pin the moose or the, the antlers on elk or moose or something because you want to get it in your house, and that's what the taxidermist recommends. If that skull plate gets broken before it's measured. We can't measure it. And on some horn game, especially pronghorn, we can't get to the true base of the horns if the taxonomy is done. The hair gets glued up high on the base of the horns, and to get to the true base, it's very difficult. So if you know that it's going to get measured and that it's exceptionally large and might get called to panel, you might not get the taxidermy done for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. I love the taxidermy. It looks better in our display. And for most species, verifying a panel's easy to do when the taxidermy is done. Pronghorn, it's difficult. Right. So we can expect at the, at the uh, convention that there's a possibility that some of the pronghorns will not be taxidermied or would they all be? Because as I've said, I've never been there. What All six of them are shoulder mounted this year. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Cause and it made for an incredible challenge. It's almost as challenging as measuring non-typical white tail and velvet or non-typical mule deer and velvet. Right. I mean, maybe not as challenging, but pretty close. And you talk about velvet now, um, if I'm understanding correctly, that's kind of a new or a recent, um, uh, I guess classification, if you will, is that correct? I don't recall the year, but well over 20 years ago, we were accepting velvet. We started accepting velvet and we were putting them in the bottom of the records, like with an asterisk noting that these were velvet. Um, we never called any velvet to panel because we weren't ranking them. And so we didn't need to verify them. I don't know why um, I could dig into the history of that with some people. But now we do have um, 14 velvet categories. They are ranked. We do recognize world records. So we do call them to panel. Um, we did call a few animals to panel in the years past, but it was really just to put them on display to give them a certificate of merit because they were exceptional animals. Right. Yeah. So, so somebody um, harvests, an animal during this period and, and we're, you know, we think it's a world, you know, potential world record or it's a, it's a dang, you know, close to it. So how do they document that they're following the rules and all of that? What's the the best way to, I mean, nowadays we have 
you know, everybody's got a phone in their pocket, but maybe you can talk a little bit about that for, you know, for our listeners that, you know, find themselves in a position where they might have a a really nice animal. I think three or four processes for preserving velvet. There's sprays, there's injections, there's freeze drying. But one thing you can't do is take the velvet off and put the fake velvet or reflocking, whatever it's called, on. We can't measure that. Okay. Um, let the velvet dry like you would hard horned. Either just let it dry on, inject it, spray it, freeze dry it. As soon as that process is over, that's when your 60-day drying period begins. And if anywhere in the drying period, you have to manipulate the trophy, um, soak it, spray it more, anything, the drying period starts over. Okay. We don't ask what method of preservation is used for velvet, but um, velvet is treated just like hard horned material. So when the velvet dries, that dry webbing, is even though you can feel the antler lower or in there, um, it's treated like hard horns. So often people think, oh, well, velvet's going to score way more because it's an extra layer. Velvet dries pretty well. And what you gain in circumference in velvet, you often lose in tine length for for the neighboring tines. So it's usually pretty close to the same. Interesting, because I would have we, thought what you just said before, I would have thought that that it would be, you know, quite a little bit bigger just because of the velvet. Well, your points still have to qualify. Right. So a point that's covered in velvet, um, when you treat velvet as antlers you're supposed to, it might not qualify as a point. Maybe it's seven-eighths of an inch. Right. But if you remove the velvet, Maybe that point is one and two eights. Mm-hmm. So point qualifications can be affected by velvet. But also if I'm taking a circumference in front of a G2 and a circumference after a G2 on a whitetail, and there's a lot of webbing, you might get, say, five inches in circumference measurements, but that tine length comes down to the top of that webbing rather than hard horned come down a little bit lower. There's a good example. and. A extremely large sick of blacktail was measured and verified a panel um, in velvet. I'm going to guess on the score. I don't remember it off the top of my head, but let's say it scored 105. Okay. They wanted to put it in Boone and Crockett, which does not take velvet. So anything that goes to Boone and Crockett, taken with any weapon that has velvet, it has to be removed. Then it's officially measured. And accepted, then they could go put fake velvet on it. Mm-hmm. But we couldn't measure the fake velvet. But a buck was then the velvet was taken off and measured to go into Boone and Crockett because it couldn't go in as velvet. And its hardhorn score two years later was nearly an inch and a half higher. Interesting. Very interesting. So if you're going to go that route, you definitely want to go Pope and Young with the velvet not removed and, and yes not if you harvest it with bow and arrow in velvet get it measured in velvet for pope and young if that's your desire some people remove it mm-hmm. and you you asked earlier like when did velvet categories start um if you were to look at historical field photos of 
many of our top mule deer, hardhorn mule deer, many of our top moose or caribou um, from decades past, whether it's right. 70s, 80s, 90s, whatever, they were killed in velvet, but they stripped it because we didn't have velvet categories at the time. Yeah. Um, those that chose not to, I want to leave the animal as it was, and then got it measured after we established those categories. Um, lucky them because uh, there's a lot of big mule deer that were killed in velvet that were stripped just because of the rules. Right. So they're kind of, for lack of better terms, on the outside looking in. Yeah. Yep. So um, it's my understanding there's some new um, classifications or categories this year. Uh, was there? There's n- there aren't any new. 12 categories there's 57 categories there's one of which doesn't even have a single entry non-typical american elk and velvet there's a couple elk categories that only have between one and three entries in their velvet categories and we only had two non-typical sika blacktail and velvets in velvet excuse me until this last year where four were taken so we have many non-typical sick of black tail and velvet at convention. So um, is the reason for this limited amount of, of the categories you talked about with um, like the elk and stuff, is that because it doesn't coincide with current um, games, uh, seasons? Yeah. And- you think of how popular whitetail hunting is. It's, 65% of our entries. Right. And it's hunted in, I think, at least 42, 43 states. To hunt whitetail in velvet is difficult. There aren't yeah. a lot of states that have seasons where you can hunt them that early. So there's a few states that really dominate the record book, if you will, for velvet whitetail that maybe don't dominate it for hardhorn whitetail. Right. Um, I know in Oregon, Deer rub out right around the first elk rub out August 15th. Mm-hmm. There are no seasons except for premium tags or what people know as governor tags where a hunt might start August 1st. That's about the only way you could kill an elk in Oregon in velvet, unless it's a stag. Um, so it's very rare to get them and to kill a non-typical American elk. Um, and velvet has proved to be impossible so far. Right. Yeah. Very, very interesting. So for the, for the lucky hunters out there that, that have taken, how many animals, you may have already said this and I may have forgotten it, but how many animals total do you have that have been, uh, that are, have been brought and they'll be displayed and gone through the process of being on panel, uh, at the convention? Yeah. We invite the top five animals in the recording period for all 57 categories. Some categories have over a thousand entries and we pick the top five and some categories have zero or one or two animals. So every animal that comes in in those categories gets invited. I think it came out to the tune of 320 invites. 170 animals will be at convention on display. They all came to panel and were verified. Cool. So you've got 170 that are going to be on display at the convention. It's the largest display we've ever had. That's awesome. Now, 
of the, are you going to have anything in addition to the 170? Is there any of them from previous years or you, do you just have those, the ones that are during this period there? Right. Um, we do have some animals that come from our office that um, were donated to us that are world records that we bring and put on display for um, decorated purposes. Right. We also, also have some taxidermy coming from a big taxidermist in town there that will be used for display. And many of the outfitters and um, corporate sponsors that have booths there have taxidermy. Right. There's some big stuff that comes in that way. Um, Steve Ward, I know, um, big big outfitter in Arizona. He often has a really nice display of, of pronghorn or cow's deer. So um, we don't bring in other animals from previous years to put in the big game display. However, we only measure the skull of a bear. Right. But two of our hunters are sending life-size brown bears to use at our big game display that were the brown bears harvested for the recording period. So that's special. So what, so what we're, um, what we're trying to say here is, is that if you want to see some extremely large animals and a diverse, a diversity of, of them, this is the place to see it. And it is April 12th through you know, the 15th in you, Reno. When you're at sportsman shows and people are looking at, it, they say, Oh, I got one that big at home. And we're like, Hey, bring it in. We'd love to measure it. Right. Um, often it's not as big or sometimes they surprise us. Yeah. There are 13 animals at our display that you do not have at home. <laughs> they yeah. are the largest. <laughs> right. So 13 of them are going to be, I'm, I'm assuming you're saying they're a world record. Yes. So it's an opportunity for you in person to, to lay eyes on the world record, 13 different world records. Yes. Um, and, and then on top of that, you've got all of the, well, if there's 13 and you said there's a total of what, 170, there's still a lot of really large animals. And out of the 170, 52 are in the top five all time. That's just incredible. Just that. It is. Being from Oregon, I see how our game management isn't going the way maybe you and I would want to see it going. Right. There's a lot of factors that come into play. But there are five animals at panel at convention that were taken in Oregon. It is still possible to take large animals in virtually every category or species in North America. Um, they're out there. Maybe numbers aren't as great in some areas as they are in others. Um, you can look at trending data, and sometimes we feel like everything in hunting is going down from hunter numbers to harvest. But in some places, it's going strong. And sometimes it is true that 10% of the hunters kill 90% of the of the take. The old 90-10 um, rule. The 90-10 rule. Um, there are several hunters that have more than one trophy at this event. Yeah. And, and we've talked about that before on previous podcasts that, you know, I, 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 people say lucky. Yes, you got to be lucky, but it's also preparation. Like you, you put yourself in that position where you're going to know that you have the best opportunity or chance to harvest a large animal and skill and, you know, all of the other things that it takes to, to do that. It's not, 
it's not just somebody, you know, goes and just, you know, I was at the right place at the right time. Yes, you were, but you also set yourself up for success. Um, so you do. Yeah. I think if you read all the stories that will be in a presentation in the ballroom, there are definitely some hunters that luck shine down on them despite some preparation and efforts. Um, they accomplish something very early in their hunting career that many of us won't do. And there are other hunters who have spent 18 years hunting 23 days in a row in the same area. And they've been very successful year in and year out there. And it hasn't been replicated. Right. So there are definitely hunters out there that are at a high, high skill level. And then there's some hunters like me that maybe don't have the highest skill level <laughs> and are used to killing smaller animals and came across an exceptional one. And it's the animal of their lifetime. Yeah. That's really special. And yeah. they're excited. They're excited to come and meet everybody and, and get a, a nominal award that just says, Hey, congrats. Yeah. Well, but it'd be, even if you have an animal, if it's not the world record, just to have one at panel is just a test. To be called a panel is quite an honor. Um, I understand there are some people that just can't get their animals to panel or the timing doesn't work out for everything. But to, to get an invite is, is rare, frankly. Yeah. We had 4,900 animals approximately in this recording period, and we invited 320. Right. So what are we talking about here? 3% yeah. of all the animals turned in and accepted open young will be on display. So with regards to the scoring of this, um, what is, what does it take for somebody to become an official scorer and, and be the person that, you know, as a, as a hunter, they can reach out to and say, Hey, I, I got one. I think you might want to come measure. Yeah. I talk to hunters all the time that, that tell me, Hey, I want to become an official measure. It sounds interesting. What's it take? And it's not a hard process. First and foremost, we have a form on our website that you can fill out showing that you're interested. It's an application. We ask for some references. We would love it if those references were other official measures so that we know something more about you. We can inquire that. But at the end of the day, what we're also looking for is an ambassador. Um, We don't want felons. We don't want, you know, people to represent the organizations, Boone and Crockett and Copenhagen, in a hunter's home or at their own, you know, in public that that don't represent and have the values that Copenhagen believes in. Right. And so the workshops that you would attend to become a measure, you're learning as much about being an ambassador as you are being a measure. But once you apply, when we have a workshop, we invite up to 24 um, students. We invite more, but 24 can come to the workshop. It's not cheap. It's not free. You are invested. Um, you pay a fee to attend the class. It covers all of our costs to get equipment and trophies there. You pay for travel. You pay for your hotel. We try to get you discounts. We'll shuttle you. We give you a couple meals. Um, but at the end of the four days, you've measured all 29 species multiple times. 
and you've taken a test, actually two tests. Very interesting. So it's a two-day course. Um, four. Four-day course. Okay. Four-day yes. course. And when it's done, they're not just a whitetail score. They're, they're, they're qualified to score all the different species, all 29 species. And if it's a joint workshop, which most of ours are with Boone and Crockett, you even know how to measure walrus. Interesting. So, yeah. So 30 species then. Sure. <laughs> and does it typically for, for a hunter that harvested, you know, one of these, you know, top notch quality animals that we're talking about, um, is it, uh, generally something you pay that score to come in and, and, and score the animal for you officially? No. Um, we cannot charge for measuring. Um, there is a fee to put it in the record book and it's $40. And that goes towards the entire process that it takes for us in the office and myself to um, evaluate the entry, process it, paperwork, mailings, and then eventually down the road, printing over a new record book. But for a measure to come in and charge, that's not allowed. They can ask for expenses like, oh, some fuel or anything that they incurred to get there. Right. A lot of times you're meeting in a, in a mutual location mm -hmm. or even at the measure's house. And if you ever run into a measure that's charging to measure, he's, he's outside of his um, code of conduct and we will, we will not tolerate that. So is it that first scores uh responsibility to check the validity of the of the harvest that it was you know legally harvested and that the drying period has taken place as it's outlined and all of that sort of um as the ambassador and as the official measure you're going to ask the obvious questions what did you kill when did you kill it what did you take it with and has it dried 60 days? Now, we can do the math. It was killed 30 days ago. It obviously hasn't dried. But it may have been killed 65 days ago, but it was in a freezer for 10 days. So you ask the questions, but at the end of the day, they are, they are signing and filling out an affidavit to attest to the 60-day dry period and their equipment and the hunt and everything. We're not, we don't ask measures to be police. Right. We do have some entries turned in so that there isn't a confrontation. And the measure then turns in another letter to us saying, I believe this was poached or I believe this is an illegal harvest and I didn't want a confrontation. And then we look into that. We don't try to be police, but if somebody comes to us with hard, obvious evidence, a conviction or something, then we'll take action against something like that. Right. So <clears throat> once it goes to panel, then that animal is scored, I guess, you know, it was officially scored before everybody hears the word, you know, that was, a, it was officially scored at this or whatever, but when it goes to the panel, then that official score can ultimately alter or be changed because it's going it through the panel. So what's the panel? If you can explain to our listeners, what's the panel process? What does that look like? You know, scores sure. and all that. So when we invite an animal to panel, it's either the top five animals from the recording period and or it's a top five all-time animal. 
We aren't looking to change a score or come up with a new score. We're looking to verify that the original measure identified the correct starting locations, the correct abnormal points, typical points. Um, length of palm on moose is a very difficult measurement. We verify that what the measure declared is what we also see and agree upon. We know that there is going to be shrinkage. We account for that. But if a buck comes in and it's got five declared points on the right and seven on the left, and we get six on the right and seven on the left, then there's another point there. It's different. Each animal that comes to panel is measured by two teams of three measures. These measures come from all over North America. Um, often they have a lot of experience measuring multiple species, but then we also have measures that come from the Midwest that maybe they haven't measured a moose since they were in their workshop 20 years ago. Um, we make sure that we team these top measures up with others, and it's a three-person team collaborative effort. They agree on every single starting point and every measurement. Then I take the original score sheet, I take team one score sheet and team two score sheet, and we look at them. What do we see that's um, grossly different? Is it point length? Is it point count? Is it an outside width on a moose? Is something significantly off? If we find that, we then bring the two teams together with our records chairman or myself, and we resolve um, the discrepancy. That could result in a score change going up, could result in a score change going down, um, but it's really to make sure that what we're seeing as two teams and what the original measure declared is corrected or agreed upon. Interesting. So is it, is it common to see it change? And if it is changed, is it, is it change a bunch or is it generally pretty, you know, it's pretty close to what it was or it stays exactly the same. Right. As an example, two years ago, we had 130 trophies and 20 approximately entries. The score went up and 18, the score went down. The other 90 or so stayed the same. The original score held this year. 170 trophies, approximately. We had 21 score changes or scores go up and 19 go down. Predominantly in the last two panels that I've been a part of, the score changes are commonly in caribunus. They have two of the more difficult measurements to take and a lot of measures don't get a measure, but a moose or two a year or a caribou every now and then. And so those scores can all, can often change. Velvet does have some changes because some measures are very careful with velvet or more careful. And some points when they're originally measured two years ago, qualified as a point or didn't. And when it comes to panel, maybe the velvet has shrunk more and it's changed whether point qualifies. We did have two trophies this year where they changed categories. They went from typical to non-typical. Interesting. 
we kind of knew these were coming in that there could be a discrepancy and we had worked with the measures previous and the two teams declared some points to be abnormal rather than typical. And their scores actually went up in score. They've changed categories and they still are ranked very high in those categories. So, so no matter which way they would have went, they, they were, they were very nice uh, specimen regardless. Oh, regardless. And, we don't res- we don't um, report or put out the results to panel um, until the convention. However, we started something two years ago that I was very adamant about and got a lot of good support. I do reach out to all the hunters where their scores go down because mm-hmm. I want them to know and the measures to know um, what the discrepancy was. Yeah, so that way they know instead of they're not just they're always they're always fine with it for the most part. They do seek to understand what changed. And uh, a lot of times it is in moose. And often what we hear from the measure and the hunter is, you know, I don't measure a lot of moose. So I wasn't, I wasn't hundred percent off. This is the best length of palm, for example. That being said, this also is an opportunity for the chairman and myself to soft audit our measures. Not to say, Hey, you did great or you did bad, but what can we do in our, um, continued training and in our workshop training to try to make sure those particular issues can be avoided in the future. Yeah. So we've been talking here for, you know, the better part of probably 45 minutes about trophies and measurements and all of that. And one of the words that you brought up that I, I want to kind of fall back on and talk about is ambassador. Um, because Pope and Young is not just a organization for keeping track of, you know, the world records, if you will. Correct. Um, maybe if you could explain to the listeners a little bit about what, how this information and how this data is, um, once it's collected, where it goes, where the, you know, the average guy that's, you know, hunting can, can access it and, and what it's all about and, maybe even just a little bit of a history um, for, for the listeners out there. Sure. Um, I think measures in the past weren't given as much ambassador training. Um, most all of them are very knowledgeable about the history of Pope and Young because it is a pretty young organization in comparison to Boone and Crockett for sure, but even other organizations. Um, a very brief step back in history is that Boone and Crockett um, and Theodore Roosevelt, they established a scoring system for a purpose. It was to help track um, the health and the quality of gain. I mean, originally, by having a system that they could score and evaluate um, the maturity of animals. And the harvest, they could see whether conservation efforts, which Boone and Crockett created conservation, um, if those efforts were working. The record book evolved, the scoring system evolved. And for Boone and Crockett, it is a data set. The data is very valuable to fish and wildlife agencies, and it's valuable to, in a broad picture, a footprint for the North American 
wildlife model. I mean, it's a piece of it. Pope and Young, their data is really to preserve bow hunting. I think that's what it was really started for. Glenn St. Charles was a Boone and Crockett member. He was very active in the National Field Archery Association. And they were starting to keep some archery big game records. And they were seeing that there were states where they were having trouble getting archery seasons established or represented well. And we needed some data. Like if you go to your Fish and Wildlife Agency and they say, hey, we're going to make this big change. We now have public sessions and reviews and they have to have some data to support it. So for 62 years, Pope and Young has been gathering archery taken animals. And we're talking about hand-drawn archery. And the data has been used to show states and provinces. It may seem silly now that we've had bow seasons in many states for 20, 30 years, but it continually shows that it's an effective means of harvest and that we successfully take mature animals. And if you do look at some of the stats, you do see things in the trend. You can see when COVID was, you can see when a winter kill on pronghorn happened in Wyoming because we get less entries. And you can also see success stories of reintroductions of elk into various states. You can see when North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Pennsylvania, now Wisconsin have elk seasons. Um, that data is valuable to show that archery is an effective means of harvest. And our ambassadors need to know that Pope and Young isn't just a record book. We're yeah. the largest bow hunting organization preserving and protecting bow hunting. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, I can speak for it as one that until, you know, recently, um, you know, I knew what Pope and Young was. Um, I knew they were kind of like Boone and Crockett, but they were a little bit different. You know, I couldn't have really told you much, but as I've, you know, now I'm a member, um, joined, um, I don't know, probably about eight months ago, something like that, I think. And it's just, you know, you don't even know what you don't know. Um, it's been a, 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 a great eye opening and it's a, there's a ton of resources out there, um, that, you know, didn't even, I didn't even know that it was available, but it's, uh, you know, we've, we've actually talked about previously on the podcast of, uh, you know, I'm in obviously in Kansas, but there was a time where there wasn't an archery season in Kansas. And, you know, my dad, even in my dad's, uh, in his lifetime, he's, he's talked about, he remembers when he saw a deer for the first time, you know, and, you know, there's around here, we're lucky enough that, um, we kind of joke around with one another that we don't, you generally get skunked, you know, heart, we can go, we can go an entire season without getting skunked where we, you know, went out and sat in a tree stand and, and didn't see anything. Most of the time we we don't get skunked. So to go in, you know, in one lifetime in one, you know, probably 50 year span, that's a huge success story for, you know, for, uh, conservation and, and to where we're at now where, you know, we've got some really nice deer in this, you know, in this state that, uh, year in, year out, we're, you know, we're one of the, I don't know, arguably probably top five States where you could go shoot a, an, a world, world-class deer. Um, and I always kind of joke around whenever I'm traveling, um, you know, being from this area, 
uh, if you don't shoot a 180 class deer, then you probably, you know, don't really want to brag much about it because we just were lucky and we shoot monster deer. But it, so when you're into that every day, it's really easy to, to lose track of, you know, that's not normal, you know, to have that opportunity to, to shoot right. a deer that size, a whitetail. You, you know, the, the success of wildlife management is shown in many forms. And that's a great example where a, just a generation ago, they weren't seeing game. They didn't have maybe an archery season and now they do. And, and success is higher and people have changed. I keep picking on Oregon where I live that it's a state of opportunity. They give out a lot of tags. And if you see three bucks in a season, you're excited. Man, and so crazy. harvest is often smaller animals because the opportunity is so short and the number of say mule deer are less than it was many years ago. But then you take hunters that want to use a piece of equipment that requires a different skill set, some um, some different uh, motivations, some t- different time frames. You've got to put a little more time into it. And you've got to be willing to go home empty-handed. And so when I hear like trophy hunting, you're talking about a hunter that's passing on smaller game, you could say for the betterment of the herd, but also just to challenge himself. And there's absolutely nothing wrong. In fact, there's a lot of good in harvesting the mature animals in an animal density rather than harvesting all the juvenile animals. And when archers or muzzleloader hunters or riflemen target specific size, and we'll just say we use a scoring system to refer to those, a 300-class bull or a 180-class whitetail, to use that scoring system as a baseline to target animals, it's a very good thing. At the end of the day, every animal has a score, whether it's standing there or laying there on the ground. Whether we uncover the score um, is up to the hunter. But the animal has a number. And that's just one thing that we can use to memorialize that animal and to memorialize the hunt. Well, and also continue the, the conservation effort to, you know, make the environment for those animals stronger, better, and, you know, more successful, if you will. Um, that's, that's truly what it's all about. And that's, I think that's one of the things that we as sportsmen need to maybe focus on a little bit is, is that realize that, that we are, if we, we're probably, I think without a question, we're the, the, the biggest, um, advocate for the, the, the overall health and wellness of the, the animal population, if you will. Um, we're the stewards. Yeah. How many organizations are the conservationists? Other other organizations that try to tout that to me, they're really just preservationists. They really aren't looking to manage and conserve anything. Um, it's politically agenda. And you, you just look at the history of the money and the efforts put forth in conservation in the history of conservation, which Boone and Crockett again started. Um, it's not even a close comparison. They can't even argue it. Right. 
And, and that's, we've also talked about that a little bit on the podcast and previous, previous, uh, recordings that, um, you know, if you're Pope and Young, Ducks Unlimited, Quell Unlimited, Whitetail Unlimited, Rocky Mountain Elk, whatever they are, um, they don't just, just because it's, you know, one species named in their, you know, organization, it doesn't generally just benefit just that one species. There's a host of different species and plants and animals and overall that is affected positively by those sportsmen and what they're doing. Um, it's not just for that one particular, uh, species. Uh, I think we, there's no good, you know, one's better than the other one. One's, you know, better than this one. I, I think it's, it's important if you're going to be, you know, in this, you know, enjoying this and out hunting, regardless of what it's going to be, get involved and get and join one of them, um, or multiple of them, because, you know, there is a lot of carryover and a lot of, you know, you know, we don't just hunt just one species. Most, most of us will, you know, go across and, you know, hunt Turkey. We got that coming up. Super excited about that. Um, we're just, you know, coming off of coyote hunting right now. Um, you know, Kansas introduced a, a thermal, so we're, you know, we've been sh- thermal hunting for, for coyotes. Um, but then, you know, you go right around the corner, we've got fall coming on and then you've got whitetail and you've got ducks and pheasants and quail just in this area. And as you go out West, you know, mule deer, elk, they're just, it's most hunters will, will not just focus on just one thing. And I think it's, and I think that's true more and more, um, as time goes by, I know some hunters historically just because of either knowledge or ability or means didn't have, um, opportunity or take time to go hunt other species. But I think as hunting is evolving and, and information is being shared, we have knowledge that we didn't have before. and that piques interest. Doesn't mean that you're going to go up to Alaska and kill a top five moose, caribou, bear, whatever, but you might go up there and have an experience that changes you, influences someone else, and in the end, that helps hunting. Yeah, and and so many times it's it's portrayed that we are, um, you know, we're all about the harvest and we're all about the you know that score. And man, that just couldn't be any farther from the truth because there's so much that leads up to that. Um, you know, this time of year here, we're out looking for sheds. That's fun. That's, you know, camaraderie, go out, um, you know, with your family and with your friends and your hunting buddies and, you know, you have that experience. And then you're out, you know, in the next, you know, over the summer, we're out and getting food plots prepped and, you know, making sure that trails are, are, are trimmed and everything. And, you know, the trail cameras and getting pictures and stuff. And that's that camaraderie and that, that, you know, back and forth is what, I mean, for me, that that's the experience, the overall experience, the actual harvesting of the animal. Yes. That's, um, you know, part of it, but putting meat on the table is, is huge, but also just being out in the woods and enjoying the, you know, God's country, if you will. That's, that's for me, what it's all about. I think, and I, most th- and I think that, that too is evolving. I think my grandfather was a meat hunter. He's killed some giant deer, but he was a meat hunter. Um, he didn't look at hunting early on in his life as recreation or a fun sport or camaraderie. He looked at it as a way to put meat on the table. 
But later in his life, he would hunt in places that now take 25 plus years to draw. And he hunted them every year. And it wasn't because um, he knew of some secret spot. It was a spot nobody had the stones really to go to. It was, right. It's difficult. And today, when you wait 25 years to go in to places like this because of our um, application processes and point systems, um, people don't get to experience but maybe once in their lifetime, what he was doing every year, but he had a different perspective on it for us to go in there. It's going to be the full meal deal. It's from planning, drawing the tag, going in. And if at the harvest at the end is, is the end result, that's great for him. It was an ultimate failure. If he came home without an elk right. or a deer, um, we look at it differently now because we have the means maybe. And I do tell people all the time, you know, I don't know what my success rate is. It's 40% or something on tags, but it is a small portion of, of the hunt. Um, the preparation is a lot of fun being with others. Um, it's often a good part of it. Challenging yourself, applying skills um, is a big part of it. Yeah. So I've got two questions um, as we're kind of coming towards the, you know, the, the end of this year for you and, and they're more uh, personal um, and they may be the same, but what is your favorite species to hunt and maybe tell a little bit about that area or whatever um, where you like to do that. And then your favorite memory of a hunt and what, you know, w- what that looked like or, or, or why it was your sure. favorite. You know, we ask, I ask a lot of hunters the same thing. Um, I've asked a lot of um, people that have come to panel or animals have, and they're at convention, the same questions. And it's amazing that I don't hear what I expect to hear. Um, there are guys that live in whitetail country that love to hunt elk, and that's a, one of the most popular answers. It's tough for me to answer because I really haven't hunted um, a lot of stuff that I want to. I haven't been on a moose hunt or a caribou hunt. You know, I've, I've hunted all species of deer. I've hunted a couple species of bear um, and two species of elk, pronghorn. I've been on some sheep hunts, not with a tag in my hand. I love to elk hunt. Um, being from Oregon, I also really enjoy blacktail hunting. But if I had one hunt left to do and money was no option, I, w- I want to go on a moose hunt. I think the memories that were made elk hunting with my dad and my friends are why elk hunting is so special to me. But I do have a very close second, and that's pronghorn hunting, and I usually hunt them by myself. Nobody's with me. I usually only hunt them with a bow, an arrow. And it's the challenge. It's being out in the open. It's beating a very smart animal at a game. And I I just enjoy uh, the meat as well, but I enjoy that hunt because I'm usually by myself. Gives you time to unwind and decompress, if you will, and yeah, just take it all in. Yeah, it's church. And and where do you where do you use your favorite spot to hunt the um, I rifle hunt elk with my family in this state because most of my family are rifle hunters. I archery hunt elk in any state I draw a tag in. I drew right. New Mexico last year for deer and elk. 
Um, I've hunted Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, um, Washington, but um, anytime you can draw an elk tag, especially it's taken years, um, is special right out of the gate and you just try to put it together. I've hunted pronghorn maybe four or five states and some states there are a lot more pronghorn <laughs> and some or units or spots than others. That adds to the challenge. Um, I went on my first archery whitetail hunt this last year. It just hasn't been an opportunity for me prior. So you've, you've only been on one white, where was your um, archery whitetail at? In Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Uh, were you able to harvest one? No, I missed. <laughs> sore subject. Shouldn't have brought it up. I didn't. That's no, not a sore subject. I've, I've muzzleloader hunted a lot of whitetail in Northeast Oregon. Um, so, you know, I, I have a fondness for them and, and their abilities an animal to elude me, but uh, yeah, he ducked me. Yeah. It happens to the best of us. Yeah. And if I could just have it over to do over again, I, uh, I don't know if I've talked about it on this podcast, but it, it's, it's kind of a funny story. I had a really, uh, interesting experience a couple of years ago. I was, it was, uh, you know, here in Southern Kansas and the rut was on, I mean, it was, they were just amped and they were everywhere. And I was hunting, um, with my son-in-law and I had to leave, uh, you know, generally when there's those four or five days during bow season here that if, if they're, you know, turned on, you just, if you just stay in the tree as long as you can all day long, we'll do a lot of all day sets. But I had that particular day, I had to come back. I had some business meetings I had to go to and everything. So when I got down out of the stand, my particular tree stand was sitting right on the property line that I had permission on. And I know the guy that owns the other property lines and everything, but I thought to myself, you know, <clears throat> well, I was going to get down out of the stand and see if there were any deer out on this field. Um, where my son-in-law was, was hunting. And so, um, as I get down out of the stand, um, I thought to myself, you know, I'm not going to put myself in that position where some, you know, 180 deer walks by me because I'm literally going to be two foot, you know, from the property line, you know, to my right. And in front of me, I'm going to be, you know, probably maybe 10 yards. So there's no way that I'm going to see a deer that's going to be, you know, in, you know, in bow range where I'm going to be able to get a shot off. So I get down and I have to walk across this little creek, you know, that the, my, my tree's sitting on and super long story short, um, this deer ended up getting within about three or four feet of me and my bow is on my back <laughs> and I've got a video of it. And the reason I got a video of it is because I was, I was actually going to text my son-in-law and say, Hey, I'm leaving. And you know, good luck, whatever. And I had my phone right in front of me. And then I thought to myself, you know, my first question or my first, so he comes around from the right, you know, and, and I, before I came up out of the Creek bed, I looked and made sure there wasn't anything, but it was rut. So, I mean, these deer are moving, you know, and he comes up and he's working a scrape right on the other side of this uh, hedge tree from me. And he's 10 feet from me, 12 feet from me at this point. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? So my first thought was like, there's no way I can get to my bow. So then I would flip my phone to my camera because nobody's going to believe me. And that dude just comes right around the corner and he gets within three steps of me. And I'm, I mean, he's just looking at me. He knows something's not right, but he's just looking at me. And I'm like, now I'm nervous because I'm face to face with this buck. And I'm like, man, did I get some, you know, scent on me or something or just some doe urine and he's going to, you know, come at me or whatever. 
And then all of a sudden he just, you know, turns and starts walking off. And I kid you not, he walks about 20 or 30 yards away. And then here comes a doe out in this field that I was going to, you know, that I was looking at and she's hauling, you know, past me, um, being chased by another buck. And he spins right back around and runs right back past me. (laughs) So twice this deer, he's probably a 150 class deer just within three steps of me. And, you know, that experience. You know, you have these encounters with animals when you least expected that, that leave a lasting impression. I've had that with bobcats and bears and other species when I'm hunting another one, this species that I hunted for weeks, didn't, didn't fill a tag. And then here they are. Yeah. I, we tease out here. At least I do hunt deer to find elk, hunt elk to find deer. Yep. That's exactly. Yeah. Totally can relate. And that's, you know, but that, again, that experience, I just, I didn't have to harvest anything. It was, it was just the experience. It was just, it was cool as could be that, 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 that happened and everything. So, but well, Hey man, I greatly appreciate you coming on here. I look forward to meeting you in person here uh, next month out in you as well. Yeah. In Reno. And we're super excited to be out there and, and to, you know, present that, uh, Dan Wesson, 1911. And, and, uh, it's been a real good, good time sitting here talking with you, Tim. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. You bet. Well, thanks for taking the time and reaching out to us to to have interest in Pope and Young and, and learn about the process. Absolutely. You know, yeah, we're we're there's totally a lot of people interested. out there that um, have an opinion on a topic, and if you can uh, maybe change their opinion with some facts and information, um, I'm all for it. Absolutely. Well, until we talk next time, man, we appreciate it and God bless. Good luck turkey hunting. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Have a good day.